This Week in Higher Ed. Mike Palmer here, as always, joined by uh, Dr. Terry Givens. And uh, we have a special guest today in Dr. Ronald uh, Crutcher. And uh, there's a lot of overlap between uh, Dr. Crutcher's new book, uh, I Had No Idea You Were Black, and Terry's new book, uh, Radical Empathy. So I think there's plenty for uh, the two of you to discuss, and I'll try to get a question or two uh, in edgewise along the way. But uh, but just to begin, uh, Terry, welcome and and welcome, uh, Dr. Crutcher. Thank, Thank you so Thank much. Pleased to be here. Yeah. Yes. So uh, so we normally begin with a little bit of uh, check in time just to talk about what's new and noteworthy in the world around us. Uh, so uh, Terry, you were mentioning. Uh, when we were setting up here that uh, the COVID rates uh, in California seem to be coming down. Uh, I'm based out of Brooklyn. Uh, we're also seeing uh, things moving in a good direction. Obviously, uh, the vaccine adoption is something that I think all of us are looking at carefully. And uh, and Dr. Crutcher, I, I think we'd love to get some of, of your perspective on that as someone who's responsible for the, the university of, of Richmond. So, you know, we talk in the abstract about a lot of stuff that, uh, that I imagine you're really living uh, and breathing uh, day to day, but, but maybe beginning with you, uh, Terry, anything new, exciting, uh, top of mind uh, as we're just checking in and kicking off here today? Um, I don't know if we, have we talked about my move to McGill? Uh, in I think I think we mentioned it last time, but it was still news. Uh, yes. Now you've had a little time to settle in. So do you, do you want to reshare that news? Yes, that I, I will be starting as a faculty member in the Department of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, and also working with the provosts on their strategy uh, to confront anti-Black racism. And the big part of that is going to be uh, really recruiting Black faculty there. They want to try to increase the Black faculty by 85 faculty in the next 10 years. And wow. actually, there's some overlap with uh, Dr. Crutcher's experience at Wheaton College in particular and try to diversify the faculty um, there. But uh, yeah, so that's my big news. And then just we're all getting vaccinated. And um, we've had some interesting times with the high school and their schedule and all of that. But it, it's going where I think we're all learning a lot from you know, what's happening now and I'm going to learn a lot because I will be teaching remotely in the fall so I'm mm -hmm. uh, looking forward anybody out there who has tips for me on, on teaching online please share um, but we have they have really good resources at McGill for that so mm -hmm. and I, I really was very upfront about wanting to be a faculty member when I get to McGill I'm looking forward to getting back to teaching and, and all of that. Yeah, and Montreal is an amazing uh, town, uh, mm -hmm. as is Richmond. So that's my segue, uh, that's Dr. One of Crutcher. One my favorite cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so can you catch us up on on who you are and how how you've been lately? Absolutely. Well, first, let me say congratulations to you, Terry. I, I love M McGill is a magnificent university, and it I have is. great music faculty there too. Um, yeah. By the way, I have several friends who are on the music faculty, and I've had several friends who've sent their children to go to school there. But yeah, Richmond, I mean, in terms of the, the, um, the virus, uh, fortunately, the, uh, the rates have gone down in, in Virginia. Um, our governor from the very beginning has done a spectacular job. Our governor, uh, Dr. Uh, Ralph Nordum, uh, Northern rather, um, uh, is a physician and has been very attentive from the very beginning. So I, I've, we felt very comfortable being in the state of Virginia. Uh, my wife and I and I have had have are fully vaccinated, and our daughter, who's 35, has had her first uh, uh, 
her first vaccine and we'll have her second one uh, next week. Um, and she's, she's uh, uh, getting the Moderna. So we're gonna go up and be there with her just in case she has uh, issues afterwards because mm -hmm. she lives by herself. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to the university, I'm very proud of what we've done this year. I mean, a year ago, we were going crazy. I mean, hair on fire, hair, well, I don't have any hair, but if I had <laughs> hair, it would have been on fire. Um, not, you know, trying to figure out what to do because we are a small liberal arts university. We have a total of 4,000 students, including a law school, five different schools. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, and, and our, you know, uh, uh, our value added is uh, the interpersonal touch, the, the in-person uh, experience that our students have. And so we were trying to figure out how to to replicate that or how to have some semblance of that within the context of COVID. And, uh, you know, first semester, about 67% of our classes were face-to-face -face with the rest being either remote or, or hybrid, uh, slightly higher this semester. But we've done incredibly well this year with our rates of infection. We had a blow up just before Thanksgiving. You know, we've been going between one to 2% each week and it went up to about 11% because mm -hmm. of I don't need to get into details, but party. <laughs> uh, and then, then, and we sent them home just before Thanksgiving, thank God. So, mm -hmm. and, and this semester at the beginning, the rates were a little higher, I think because people are out, you know, again, coming back to us, we tested everyone. But now for the last couple of weeks, we've been at zero. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and this is the last, our commencement's on Sunday. So we're done it. We're done now. Yeah. Summer school will be, will be, uh, done remotely. Of course, the big issue right now is the fall. Mm -hmm. Our hope is to be back in person in the fall, but what that means, we don't really know yet. We are, so we had, we developed a four stage physical distancing um, uh, 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 platform or, or framework. And we're in the, so red, um, orange, yellow, green. We're in orange now, we're gonna move to yellow next mm -hmm. week which gives a lot more freedom. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're in the midst now of trying to decide, will we require the vaccine? Yeah, I was going to ask that. Everyone uh, or just students. And mm -hmm. so we're in the middle of, of, of having those conversations right at, at this moment. Yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, I'm, as you, you may know, I'm stepping down in, in uh, August mm -hmm. and I'll be uh, doing a sabbatical for two years and then I'll come back as a university professor and, and be joining the faculty in our, our leadership school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and we I did see when I was doing a little bit of research that you, uh, you're a renowned cellist and you were playing uh, the cello for uh, your students uh, online right. a year right. ago. Uh, and it, it did strike me because, because uh, even your tone at the time was a little more uh, somber because it was a very difficult time. And it did make me reflect on, the year that was, uh, but but do you have any thoughts on the importance of, of music and the arts uh, to get us through these difficult times? Uh oh, well, yeah. As a matter of fact, earlier this afternoon, at noon, as a matter of fact, I um, I did a I, I taped a segment for the Minuan International Violin Competition, which is taking place. Well, was to have taken place in Richmond. It'll be virtual now for fourteen days, uh, where we talked about the fact that I, mean, I think that. Uh, just as I said in that recording, when, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I relied on music as a refuge. Mm -hmm. 
you will, you know, because I think music can help us transcend the vicissitudes. Art in general, not just music, uh, dance, uh, theater, uh, you know, poetry can help you transcend the vicissitudes of everyday life. But I think in this year in particular, it's been more important. And in fact, we have made it possible for our students to, um, to participate in arts activities, even, even though we've been remote this year. So for instance, last fall, we did a, a performance, our, our students did a performance <coughs> of a Shakespeare play in our Greek theater with limited seating and we streamed it. So I watched mm -hmm. it online because two of my mentees were in it. Our, our orchestra has been doing that. The dance troupe has, has done that. And, um, and, and, um, and so that's, and that's been really important for them because when you're you know, physically distanced in the classroom, when, when we're in the red stage, that means there's, you, you really can't, students can't visit each other from residence hall to residence hall, very limited uh, opportunities to interact with people. And so those opportunities, even though remotely to participate in arts activities, I think are critically important. Yeah, are, are, any, are, are any of those, um, you know, I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about your plans uh, for the future, but uh, but it does. One of the questions that keeps coming up as we think about the impact of the pandemic and where we're heading next is, what will we keep? Yes. What will we let go? It does sound like, uh, in terms of opening up access to the arts to uh, to more people in new ways, um, that does sound like uh, perhaps a silver lining uh, from uh, what we've experienced in, in in this past year. Maybe beginning with you, uh, Dr. Crutcher, and then I'd love to get some of your perspective, uh, Terry, as well. Any of the positive elements, things we've learned that you think are going to change the way higher education and our lives work uh, in the future? Well, I, I certainly, you know, um, I mean, as I said uh, earlier, we are a university, you know, we have an eight to one student faculty ratio. So that close interaction with faculty is critically important. We have already said next year, our, our, uh, we, we will not be doing any online or hybrid uh, uh, teaching uh, unless something untoward, you know, God forbid happens. Right. Like there's a, another a spike. That doesn't mean we won't be doing it anywhere at all because we're, we've our, we had been doing that in our school for continuing in professional studies and, and in our master's in business administration. But where I do see that we have real opportunities in two areas. One, I think in, in, in providing uh, access to content for students so that the, you know, they get the content online and then that frees up the professor to interrogate that content because we know that students learn more deeply when they are required to, to engage in a conversation about what they've read or about what they've learned. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And, and, and with respect to our parents and our, and our uh, alums, a whole new area has opened up to us, mm. I believe. And I can't tell you how that's going to manifest itself. I can tell you how I think of. I mean, for instance, we have a, a lecture series here called the Sharp Viewpoint Series. It brings in uh, uh, speakers from various political viewpoints and perspectives. This year, we've been able to have the largest audiences every any time in, in history because they were all online. You could mm -hmm. sign up for them, and 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 I think there are lots of opportunities for connecting and engaging our alums and parents. Uh, 
that uh, we can take advantage of utilizing uh, uh, utilizing Zoom or whatever platform you might utilize. Yeah. How about you, Terry? You're going to be uh, teaching online mainly, although I guess you'll be up and down to Montreal a little bit, but you're... Yeah. How are you expecting that to, to play out? And how do you think, what have you learned over the past year? And, and for you, you're going back into academia, so you might have uh, some different perspective there. Yeah, well, I think there's so many tools. I guess the, the one thing I've learned is that there's an amazing number of tools out there for faculty to really succeed at teaching online. And so I'm looking forward to taking advantage of those. But to you know reflect on, on what Dr. Crutcher was just saying is that, um, as a parent, I, my son is at Lewis and Clark in Portland, um, and as a parent, I felt like I had more access to the institution this past year than I did previously because meetings, you know, uh, the president would do his broadcast. I, you know, I couldn't make it to his Christmas party at his house, and so he did it online this year. And I thought, like, oh, look, you know, I actually get to be at the, the president's Christmas party. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's all these different things that, um, you know, like my son is on the track team and they've been live streaming the track meets, you know, I can't go up to Portland every week for his track meets. Um, so all, there's all these different ways that I feel like we've learned to re-engage um, that we haven't been able to do before. And so I think that's been, uh, and also music wise, my husband and I, we like classical music as well, but we're, we're both very much into jazz. And so the San Francisco jazz has had their Friday events and now they're starting to do more on demand. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's kind of, you know, we had kind of stopped driving up to San Francisco for the events because we just were getting <laughs> lazy, but now we pay, we're paying a lot more attention to what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, just a lot of different um, things that I've done in the last year that I would not have done because I, I didn't want to go to the venue or, right. you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's going to be <laughs> interesting, too, I, th I think, just to see how things blend Mm -hmm. together in the future, you know, conference, academic conferences in particular are something that I think had to go all the way online. And now is we're at this sort of in-between phase where people are starting to think about bringing people back in. But when you do that, can you still keep some of those access points open? It looked like you were you were going to say something, uh, Dr. Crutcher. Well, I, I just was going to say, and Terry, please call, please call me Ron. Okay, um, fine. <laughs> uh, with respect to performing organizations, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've played the cello forever. I mean, since I was a young, uh, 14 years old. And never would I have believed that you could do a concert online and have the same kind of emotional experience. But that's what we've experienced this year. And not only that, last summer, I played a, a recital on the Symphony Summer Series. They had 40 people in the audience in an auditorium that held 200. But guess what? Over 400 people watched me perform mm -hmm. all around the world, <laughs> which would not have happened. Yeah. So it was really, it was, it was an amazing experience. And the sound quality, because I was able to go back and listen to it, mm -hmm. was not the same as being in the room, of course, but it was not bad. It was pretty yeah. good. Yeah, and yeah. our symphony, I'm on the board of the Richmond Symphony. I mean, we figured it out because we were all terrified at first. What we're going to do, we don't want to, we don't want to lay the musicians off. We want to be able to do concerts. And this year we had a very, uh, that's Richmond Symphony is a commitment to, to, uh, having diverse composers and performers uh, as well. Well, 
uh, with our with, uh, our very talented new music director and our artistic director, they came up with a program with a smaller group of musicians that has been incredibly engaging for our audiences. And we actually have more people now than we had before, uh, you know, listening into those audience, uh, into those concerts. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, uh, and it does uh, touch on the other uh, main theme that we've been hitting on a lot uh, here as well is just around diversity and uh, access. Social justice has been another uh, macro trend that we've been talking about a lot since last summer, uh, right on through, um, you know, unfortunately the continued yeah. uh, problems we've had with policing in the US, but also at least we did have some resolution around a verdict recently. Um, I did want to pivot uh, into both of your books uh, and and hear really the two of you maybe talk more to one another about connections between the two, because uh, I do think they are, um, they're both uh, really interesting. They're both very personal memoirs uh, that I think, you know, Terry, you've talked a lot about the importance of vulnerability and building that trust and psychological safety, uh, you know, an element of leadership, I think, is putting yourself out there first uh, so that others can can sort of follow your lead and feel some sense of comfort and, you know, that it's safe to share. Um, Terry, I know you wanted to pick up on some, uh, some specific aspects out of uh, radical empathy, and then I'd love to dive in as well uh, into uh, I, had, I, know, I Had No Idea You Were Black, which is a uh, you know, I think that story in and of itself is, is one that we are going to want to hear as well, because that's quite a title. But uh, but maybe beginning with you, uh, Terry, uh, any any initial thoughts? Well, I was uh, uh, pleasantly surprised when I got the book and saw the title and everything, because um, I've heard that, of course, as well. You know, when, you, when you're well-spoken and you talk to people on the phone and, and they haven't actually met you and then they meet you and it's like, oh, I didn't know you. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, one thing, uh, the first thing I want to take to jump in on is this um, issue, you know, we, so we went through a, you know, along with the pandemic, on top of that, we had this whole season of protest. Um, and I, I was, you know, I know some of the issues that were coming up uh, at the University of Richmond and then the names of buildings and so on. And, you know, I, I told some friends, there, I said, well, you know, I was at UT Austin for 12 years and every one of the days I was there, I passed by a statue of Jefferson Davis and a whole bunch of other Confederates. And, um, you know, my sons went to Richard, Robert E. Lee Elementary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, we went through that struggle in Austin over, and actually they're going through this struggle right, right now, now right. over the eyes of Texas. And so, you know, they did end up changing the name of the school and, and it, Robert E. Lee Elementary didn't make any sense in Austin. It's like he had no connection to Austin. Right. Right. And it was one of those schools named in the 1930s, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so they changed it to Ali, who was um, a photographer and well-known photographer in Austin. So that that made sense. And then, of course, they did get rid of, or they didn't get rid of. They moved the statues into a museum, um, and they still don't know what they're doing about the. Actually, they had a very comprehensive report that came out about the eyes of Texas. And yet, I talked to my colleagues there, and they still feel like the issue is still very much up in the air. No. Um, so I know you've struggled with this issue, and you actually talk about it right at the beginning of the book. So um, I'm I'm just curious, you know, if how you feel as you're, you know, I know you're on your way out, but that, um, you know, how um, 
it seems like there's so many other things that could be part of the legacy as in terms of you know starting African and African American studies department and and so on and how you're seeing that that dynamic going on now. Yes, well, you know, um, for us, it's it's a uh, uh, well. First, let me back up. In my second year here, third year here, I put together a um, a, a president's commission on history and identity headed up by Ed Ayers, our former president, who's a renowned Southern historian, because I felt there, there were parts of our history that had gone untold. Mm -hmm. uh, stories, I mean, for instance, I'll give you this, this, this anecdote. When I was, it, it was uh, uh, introduced as president, I was introduced to a man named Barry Green. <laughs> and I was told this is, he was the first African-American to live on the campus back in 1968. Well, lo and behold, it turns out that he wasn't by himself when he came here. There were three other women who uh, were enrolled in 68, although they did not live on campus, they lived at home. Mm -hmm. And so in November of 2018, we did a, a commemorative uh, reception to commemorate, commemorate 50 years of African-Americans on the campus. And we, excuse me. Allergies. At the same time, at the same time we announced this, uh, this commission. Mm -hmm. uh, and later, about six months later, the student governments came forward with this resolution. We want you to remove the names of Robert Ryland and Freeman from these two buildings, one an academic building, one a residence hall. And we got some historians to do the work because no one really knew the full stories. We knew Ryland had been an enslaver Mm. Um, and but he had also been the minister of the First African Baptist Church, the largest Black Baptist church at the time. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know a lot about Freeman except that he had won two Pulitzer Prizes. He won a he won for a, a biography of Robert E. Lee. Um, and, and and we're as Terry knows, we're in the middle of dealing with this right now. And so mm -hmm. the, the 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 approach that we that I wanted to take was one in which rather than kind of forgetting about the history, forgetting that in 1965, the university community felt well enough about Douglas Southall Freeman, though he was a segregationist and a eugenicist to boot, to name a building after him, right? Um, and, and then Robert Ryland was our, was our founder. But as you, you know, well know, I think because of the overlay of everything that's been happening in the last year, uh, and because people really don't read that closely, even though I did make a video to explain the rationale for the history. And one thing I might add, by the way, um, had it been left up to me alone, I would have put together another commission to take the histories of the, the histories that had been produced, one was 150 pages, look at them, have some open fora so we'd hear how the community responded, but that was, that was a decision that was uh, the, that we, we didn't, the board didn't want to do that, the board mm -hmm. leadership. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to do that now. We've taken a step back. But what I'm I did, hear that. but in order to thread the, the needle, what I did suggest was that rather than leaving Freeman's name there by itself, we learned in the, the history that that there was a black man named John Mitchell who was born in, as an enslaved man who edited a black newspaper who at every opportunity would provide a counterpoint to Freeman's racist editorials. In fact, sometimes printing Freeman's words and then his rejoinder there. 
mm -hmm. uh, which took a lot of courage at that particular time. Yes. Uh, this would have been in the early, you know, early, early uh, 1900s. I talked to his descendants. They thought it would be a great idea. We were going to name the doll hall Mitchell Freeman because I wanted to put into, you know, kind of contrast those two individuals. Now, my hope had been, quite frankly, that eventually it would just be called Mitchell. People would forget about Freeman. But of course, what happened is that the, our whole approach was framed in a binary. Mm -hmm. And, and, and our, our local newspaper didn't help us there. There was an editorial that said, University of Richmond has to decide. You're either for the black students or you're for white supremacy. <laughs> and of course, it's a lot more complicated than that, needless mm -hmm. to say. Yeah. Nonetheless, nonetheless, even though I've said to people, this is not the way I'd like to end my presidency here, this is a good sign because it's an, it's, it, I knew inevitably we were going to get to this place at some time on our, in, in our evolutionary pathway toward becoming a truly inclusive community. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thank the students who were organized, the black students who organized this for raising everyone's consciousness. Because mm -hmm. now we, 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 you know, we've been attentive to helping everyone feel as though they belong and, and included at the, at the campus. But now this is a clear, it's clear, this is a, a clear signal that not everyone feels as though they belong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, therefore we have a lot more work to do. Right. Not, I don't feel we, we haven't failed because because we, we've made progress. Well, yeah, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Right. Yes. And that's why I, I like to remind people, you know, I mean, even the fact that I'm going to McGill University to be you know, an advisor to the provost on anti black racism. I mean, they're at the early stages of this. Right. Mm -hmm. And we can't just go, you know, OK, we're going to hire 85 black faculty now. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, and so we, we have to have yeah. some patience with the process, obviously. Um, and, and I think that that comes across, uh, it's, it's hard because students especially are, are often impatient and want things to happen yesterday. And, and, you know, but on the other side of it, we have, I don't know, it's, it, we're just in such an interesting time because it seems like um, we're really at a time of reckoning. And, you know, my, I wrote my book mostly before, you know, George Floyd and the, the, his murder and all of those other, the, the protests that happened last summer, although I incorporated it in before I published it. And, you know, even with COVID. And so I feel like we're in this unusual time period where there's a lot more um, impatience with change, uh, and which is, is appropriate, right? It's I mean, appropriate. Yeah, I mean, you look at our life stories and yeah. I mean, come on, you know, when I graduated from college, I graduated from undergraduate school in 1969. And I believed in my heart, I really believed this, that by the turn, you know, at those days, the turn of the millennium was a big deal. You know, mm -hmm. I thought that by 2000, you know, at least universities and colleges would have dealt with these issues and there'd be no need for black studies or mm -hmm. women's studies. We would have, you know, infused the scholarship about blacks and and women in, into the scholarship in, in in various areas in the academy and of course that didn't happen mm -hmm. and here we are in 2021 mm -hmm. so, you know so it's i i can understand the students impatience i i mean i i'm in, i'm i'm impatient but at 74 years old i have a you know i have a different view and perspective mm -hmm. having gone through the civil rights era era back in back in the 60s but but as I said before, you know, I have, I have, um, I've applauded the students for their activism, quite frankly, 
because mm -hmm. they have indeed raised the consciousness. And the one thing I just said earlier today, you know, you know, a lot of attention was turned to our board. And, and I want to remind people, you know, boards of trustees don't teach students in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Faculty teach the students in the classrooms. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm happy that they've raised the consciousness because hopefully now, because, you know, you know as well as I do, Terry, faculty don't like mandatory training or mandatory educational stuff, right? Mm -hmm. but maybe this will raise their consciousness so that they will be more aware of of the of the impact of their behavior on students and, and their classes on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. And that's, you know, academia, we, we could just talk about that for a while, but it has a lot of work to do. Um, and, you know, but even just from, you know, my own experiences from faculty all the way up to boards of trustees and, and so on. I mean, there's just a lot of work to do, but I want to come back to um, some of our areas of commonality. And, and I have to read this one passage from your book because it just, I, mean, I was reading the book and I'm like, oh my God, this is just so much in line with, with what I've experience and this has to do when um you went to um uh, miami of ohio oh, and yeah. as you say as, as i think back i'm not entirely sure why i avoided the black students association at miami but i su suspect it stemmed from my concern about being viewed as other i was attending a predominantly white university and i wanted to fit in i did not want to be singled out as different in any way every day in class a constant refrain refrain played through my head i would show my white classmates that i was just as smart as they were and that's you could have lifted that out of my book because <laughs> i you know so my story was that i you know i get to stanford and there's you have you know there was the black orientation and the regular orientation and i was like well i'd like to go to the black orientation but if i go to the black orientation then I have to leave the, the other orientation and you know what are, is everybody gonna so you know you have it is it's isn't it sad that we're stuck in these it, is. it really is <laughs> so yeah. I, I i read that and i was like okay we're, we're uh we've had very similar and, and you know my experience was in 1983. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. well let me tell you one other thing while i'm thinking you know i i your your father passed away even though yes. it's a differential the same year as my mother Interesting. Your father, I think, in June of two thousand and one. Yep. Heather, right? And my mother, yep. November the fourteenth. June thirteenth. <laughs> yeah, June thirteenth. Wow, wow. And she was November the fourteenth, two thousand. I mean, she's she was five years older. Your father was seventy three. Yeah. Right. And and mm -hmm. she was seventy eight at that. She had multiple myeloma. She'd been sick for eight, mm -hmm. eight nine years. Mm -hmm. um, but that must have had it. I mean, because you were young then. Well, I, mean, I was. You know, uh, he had had when I was so that 2001 I was 37 yeah. um so yeah that was you know, I, yeah that's young <laughs> well you know it's interesting because my son was nine months old and I, I always say you know what got me through that because he was the first very close family member I lost yeah. and yeah. And what got me through that was that I had a nine month old, you know, it's like, I just, I, that moment is very clear where you know, were leaving the funeral and getting ready. The, the funeral was in Spokane where I grew up and we were driving back to Seattle where I was living at the time. And we get in the car and my son's sitting there and I'm like, okay, I don't have time to do anything except take care of this. Take care of the son, right. Cause he doesn't yeah. have anybody else. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that put, pulled me through, but you know, that's, that was really the start of my, kind of awakening to these health disparities. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, 
And that's what really kind of pushed me along, especially, and, you know, and then I, I ended up losing more family members because of health disparities mm-hmm. and, you know, some of the various types. And that's what really got me into really was, you know, eventually writing this book. Um, but I'm curious, what kind of drove you to, to write your book? Yes. Well, it was, um, it's been, it was long in the making. And so it really started back in 2006. Uh, I was asked to be a keynote speaker. You know AACNU. Oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, every year at our annual conference, we have a, a, a luncheon for uh, faculty and staff of color. And so they asked me to speak. And I did a, a speech on, I, I think I called it Spiraling Through the Glass Ceiling, Ceiling, Seven Lessons for Any Aspiring Leader in Higher Education, or something like that. And it got a lot of good attention. I wrote an article about it. And then a couple of years later, I was with... Uh, uh, um, Bell um, uh, uh, Hooks, Bell Hooks? Hooks? Yeah, the yeah. poet, yeah. Uh, what did, I, what, did I get her name right, Bell Hook? Yeah, Bell Hook, yeah. on, on, Ma- on Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And we were talking, we have a conversation on the porch and she said, you need to, you need to ma- write a memoir. And I said, I don't have time to write a memoir. I'm president of the college. She said, sit down, take a tape recorder and just start recording your stories. And that's how I got started. I, uh-huh. I took that article, and that was part, that was a part of it. And I just started, uh, you know, uh, 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 telling stories into the tape recorded and I had someone transcribe them. And then eventually um, I started uh, 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 the serious work of, you know, working with an editor and getting a proposal and all of that. I went to Germany on a sabbatical after having been a president at Wheaton College for 10 years, was going to finish the book. But when we got to Berlin, I said to my wife, we may never again have an opportunity to do what we want to do on somebody else's done. Let's just enjoy ourselves. <laughs> so I put it to bed. I did send it to someone to read and they, they gave me some good feedback. And then a couple of years later, I was having dinner in Seattle, Washington with a, a parent who, uh, and it came up and he said, send me the manuscript. I'm, I'm interested. He found an agent for me and that's how it got published. Yeah. Well, you brought up Germany. We have to talk about Germany <laughs> because now, you know, I went there as a political scientist studying immigration politics. And so I think my awareness of race was probably a little higher than yours because I was really, you know, interacting with the Turkish community and, and, you know, seeing what was going on in, at the political level. But I thought it was really interesting, the kind of experiences you had there. Yes, well, for me to remember, I was there in 1972. Right. So 1972 was just three years after Ostpolitik began yeah. with, under Billy Brandt. And, and, and that was just at the time when the Gastarbeit and the guest workers were coming from Turkey and from Italy and from Greece. Mm-hmm. So that was early in early days. But for me, what really got my attention were two things. Number one, that I didn't have to explain why I decided to become a professional cellist. As a matter of fact, people's eyes brightened when they learned that I was a professional cellist. And then secondly, that within six months there, I suddenly realized that I felt unencumbered by race, much more so than in the United States. And and let me just explain the reason, one of the reasons for that. There are two reasons for it. One is that after the Goethe Institute, my te- at the end, my teacher said to me, when you go to Bonn, which is where I was living, the capital mm-hmm. at the time, 
people are going to automatically speak English to you because you're a black American. Do not speak English back. He said, speak only German back to them. The best advice anyone could ever give me because as they would say something to me in English and I would respond in German and what would happen? Oh, er kann schon Deutsch. And they, their whole demeanor changed, yeah. their entire demeanor. The other factor was that I was fortunate and you read about the Patriot family that I lived with for mm -hmm. three years. I lived with this family, American mother, German father, four boys. Uh, they treated me like their fifth son. She washed my clothes for me. <clears throat> Three of the boys had birthdays in February. My birthday's in February. She'd had birthday parties for me. I am positive, Terry, had it not been for that experience, for them embracing me and making me feel at home in their home, I doubt that I would have this, this I mean, this affinity, this close affinity to Germany today. But I do have a, a very warm feelings because, you know, <clears throat> I spent time in France and Germany and the UK, and some of my best friends came out of my, you know, interactions in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people I'm still in contact with that I met when I was a graduate student. And I, you know, I, I thought about that a lot. And I think part of the reason is, first of all, Germans are, especially young Germans, uh, when I was there in the '90s and early 2000s, were just very open. Yes. Um, yes. And they, um, you know, I lived in a vague, a Wohngemeinschaft, <laughs> you know, basically a dorm when I was at the University of Constance in 1995, um, and it was, you know, it was seamless. You know, there, it was, you know, I had a really good experience. I, I learned German very. You know, I'd already taken some German, but I learned German very quickly. And you're right that ability to go in and just start speaking in German, even, you know, in doing my interviews with politicians, you know, just made a huge difference. And, you know, I had a few run-ins because I would be at these big events and people would, but my favorite was um, when I went to an event and they asked me if I was the uh, ambassador from South Africa. Oh. <laughs> I almost said yes. I'm not Jewish. But I I couldn't say that. Uh, so and unfortunately, I did not get the royal treatment. But uh, <laughs> well, I will tell you this: my 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 trio. So I played in the same piano in the pian same piano trio, violin, cello, and piano, for almost forty years. They live in London, England. She's American, from but her parents were were. German extraction, and he is Welsh. And when we went to Germany to perform for the first time, we performed in Munich um, at the, a, a concert hall there called the Gasteig. And they told me when we got off the plane, we flew from London to Munich. It, she, they said to me, when we got off the plane, it was though I had come back home. My mm -hmm. home energy. It's like, <sighs> yeah, and, and it's still, and my wife sees that. And now, one of the reasons my wife and I sent our sabbatical in Germany after 10 years at Wheaton was because my wife has been there with me many, many times. We spent our honeymoon with the Patriots, as a matter of fact, in 1979, but she'd never lived there before. And, um, and, and she now has the same relationship to Germany that I had after having lived in Berlin. Actually, what happened is that she had an opportunity a year before we went there to live someone invited her to a wedding, to accompany her to a wedding in, in Berlin. And she went for seven days and fell in love with the city. And, uh, and now it's, you know, when we go back, she doesn't speak German as well as I do, but my wife is one of these people who never meets a stranger. Mm -hmm. uh, so <clears throat> it's very comfortable there. And it's, 
it's like it's like us has become a second home to her. Mm-hmm. We we didn't go back last summer. Last year was the first year since 1978 when I had not been to either England or Germany, mm-hmm. uh, and we really missed it. And we were planning to go again in July, but we we've changed it because of everything that's happening. So we're going to go in September. I, I'm going to be speaking at a, a conference in Romania, but it really does it it. it when I tell people, and, when I talk, and I'm sure you have this experience, Terry, when I talk to people about Germany, some, they sometimes look at me like, are, are you, how, how can you say that about Germany? You know, they have these, these uh, thoughts about Germany, I think as a result of, you know, the Nazis and, uh, and, and, and the World War II, but um, I, I, I have a very special relationship there and enjoyed it immensely. Mm-hmm. Are, are there lessons uh, that we can learn from either your experiences traveling, uh, your experiences in Germany, uh, or with German culture that can help inform how to navigate some of the challenges we're facing in the U.S.? Well, can, let Please. me jump in, because one of the things that both um, Ron and I talk about is that that history, right? The, the Holocaust and the Stolperstein. Yes. And... Yeah. You know, I, I've had so many conversations with people in Germany, and that's the thing is they're open, they talk about it. Um, and I think that's what's different. And that's what I talk about in the last chapter of my book is this idea, you know, for Germany at the end of the war, it was more of a punitive approach versus South Africa and kind of reconciliation. And so I think we can learn something about this. You know, the Germans aren't perfect by any stretch. You know, they've had very recent issues with this right. stuff. Um, but there is, you know, I think a path to reconciliation that we have not been on as a country. And right. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. You no, know, I, Terry, I, I agree with you. Whole, I haven't gotten to the last chapter of your book, so I'm looking, yes. we're looking forward to that. Yes. I mean, as you saw in my book, I talked about the Stolpersteiner and, right. and the fact that Germans are purposeful about not forgetting their, the, the, the history. Now, you know, it is true in Berlin, there is no marker uh, when, uh, to, to, to indicate where Hitler is buried. Right. But when you take a walking tour, they will take you to, it's an, a park, he's buried under a parking lot. There's no sign there or anything there. Hmm. What I found really, really impactful in our neighborhood in Berlin, we lived in Schalachenburg mm-hmm. on Mumsenstrasse, one street over from the Kurfürstendamm. And uh, you walk along the streets and you see these little, these little plates uh, they were metal plates with the names of the Jewish families who lived in the house in front of them. That those are the Stolpersteine or the are the stumbling stumbling stones. Hmm. And once a year, people will in the neighborhood will come out with candles. They'll shine the signs, shine the stones, and uh, you know there's a, a kind of a, a celebration again, not forgetting that history. This is what we, our fellow Germans, did to uh, people who were our fellow fellow citizens. We've never done that, with the exception of what Brian Stevenson has done in Montgomery, Alabama, to memorialize those many African Americans who were who were lynched. And it's including somewhat, somewhat, one of my relatives. What did you say? Including one of my including relatives. Of, oh wow! And have you have you did you have you gone to the Holocaust Memorial in uh, in Berlin? Yes. Well, well Brian's memorial. Well, I, and I've been to his memorial. It's very, I mean, it's it's quite moving to go yeah. there. It's really, my wife's from Tuskegee. 
So we won one of our Christmas visits, we went over there. It's quite moving. I can't wait to go to go back. But we've not done that otherwise. No, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Brian Stevenson's the Memorial for Peace and Justice, for those who don't know, is in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And I actually, when I heard that that was opening, I I knew I had to go because I have a friend who's at University of Alabama. And we'd been talking for a few years about me coming out and doing. And so I did a tour. I, w- I flew into Atlanta, went to University of Georgia, which was eye opening to see all the, you know, the, you know, signs talking about Civil War battles. And then you go, they right. stop in Atlanta, did talks at Georgia Tech and um, Emory, and then, um, you know, went to the Martin Luther King uh, uh, Memorial and, and all that is this, the, park basically and then to Alabama and to Montgomery and I started walking through that memorial and I I, you know I was just one I just knew something had told me when it opened that I had to go and Mm -hmm. uh, then as as I was walking through it each um, uh, uh, column has yeah it has a county and I thought well wait my mom is from Opelousas Louisiana what what parish is that which is a county in Louisiana and I looked it up St. Landry so St. Landry happened to be towards the end and we get there and I look and there is the name Julian Stelly. And my mother's maiden name is Stelly. Wow, amazing. So, you know, the magic of the internet, I look up and, you know, in one of the family trees, I was able to, to find mm-hmm. his name. And I was just, you know, I was just like blown away at the, that point. And because, you know, one of the things that I think we both experienced because of the time period we we grew up in 60s to and 70s and so on is that we like you said earlier we thought this issue of race was behind us and we didn't and even our parents I think you know I think part of the reason I just didn't you know I we want to move on we want to assimilate we want to be part of the broader culture but um, I think what we've learned in the last few years, especially, and what I learned in the process of writing my book is how important the history is yes. and how, and, and that we should not, you know, turn away from it and that we need to understand it because we can't understand it um, without, or we can't get past it without understanding it. And we, I, I don't, we don't want to get past it. We want to, you know, and that's what I think to come back full circle, you that's the German lesson, right? And um we, you know, that the, the fact that Germany has, you know, not everybody and not everywhere, but to a certain extent has dealt with this in a very different way, I think is a, a model and a lesson for us. And they also look, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I, because of the nature of the household that I lived in there, I'm still very close to my German family. Uh, and, and, you know, when everything was happening last May, I was getting texts from them and photographs I mean, I remember one of my my German brother's wives sent me a, a photograph of a of a demonstration at the Cologne Cathedral. They live in Cologne, and and she wrote and she said, you know, I'm glad that people are demonstrating, but she said as if we don't have problems of our own here around these issues. Oh, I know. But but the nonetheless, what I was hoping was that, you know, that that you know those uh, that that movie footage. Of of uh, Chauvin putting his, you know, put on 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 uh, George Floyd's neck, kind of was like a something that had reverberated around the world, mm-hmm. and I, I was hoping and still hope that it would mean uh, an inflection point for us here in the United States that will will move us closer to really beginning to reckon with institutional racism and things of that sort, of that of that sort. 
Yeah, and it and it seems like there has been a bit of an awakening. I think the question is uh, how much will maintain and how do we yeah. build in um, structures and techniques? Uh, you know, Terry, I know you do a lot of training, and it sounds like you even did some training at the, the University of Richmond. Um, mm -hmm. What what are both your thoughts around how we um, train faculty and staff and onboard students and you know get the right mix of people in a campus so that we can begin to have these difficult conversations because um, i think there's also a risk around uh we do have a tendency and i think you're both touching on this in the u.s to to just avoid discomfort mm -hmm. um so i'd be curious uh, really from each of you um what have you seen worked any any advice or recommendations uh as we we try to try to move forward here well, if I can speak for Ron, I think we both would agree that vulnerability, my first step in radical empathy is that vulnerability yes. um, and being open to the experiences of others. And um, I think that's a first step. And that's what I try to, to tell. Basically, we're both modeling that in our books. Um, and, you know, people may not agree with everything we, we talk about or, or the different things we, the way we approach it. But I think, you know, one of the th reasons I pursued my the way I do this is because we, we weren't making progress. We aren't hiring enough black faculty. We aren't hiring enough. I mean, it's interesting because people focus on black faculty, but the percentage of Hispanic and Latino faculty is even worse mm -hmm. in comparison to their population. Um, there's so many areas where we need to do serious work and we have to get uncomfortable and say, no, it is not okay to have, you know, and I, I don't know what your business school is like, but typically, you know, business schools, that is entirely white male. Mm -hmm. And and the problem with academia is we haven't even gotten where we need to be with women. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, our you know, we're not entirely white male, but close to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and you know, Mike, with your point, one of the things that I I, I think I, I cited this in my book. If you think about this, the public religion research institute did a survey, I think it was 2016, that showed that. 91% of whites have only other whites as part of their close network. 84% of blacks, 84%, 83% of blacks, 64% of Hispanics. And so if you think about a, uh, a residential college university campus or college university campus, we, you know, we invite our students to come into what we call our, you know, kind of multicultural communities. Um, and, 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 but, but without the understanding that our students don't really have an experiential base from which to develop relationships across racial differences or political differences or religious differences. So we have to help them do that. Mm -hmm. We have to work. And, and one of the things I, I, I believe very strongly, and I just said that earlier today, if we're going to resolve the problem, it's not simply a head problem. Terry knows this. It takes the head and the heart. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. Right? Mm -hmm. And for me, I mean, I think, you know, finding ways to be vulnerable through intergroup dialogue can be very, can be, be one access point here. Um, the University of, 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 of Michigan has for years had a very successful yeah. intergroup dialogue approach. That's not the only, only way, but that's one um, approach to the issue. Yeah, and at University of Texas at Austin, we had the difficult conversations yes. um, program, and I worked with Glenn Singleton and his um, 
uh, gosh, and I'm going to forget all of these different names. <laughs> but again, it's about it's about having uncomfortable conversations, as uh, Dee say. You know, we have to get comfortable with being, but we all have to be to get uncomfortable, right? It's it's a it's. Not, I mean, yes, African Americans uh, obviously have undergone a lot, and um, but I had to, you know, it's that's why I I mentioned that the uh, the reading I did because you know for the for us we grew up in an environment where we were expected to assimilate into white society. And so for me, I can say that, well, for both of us, obviously, it made us uncomfortable at times being in black only spaces. And mm -hmm. so I've had to come to grips and you know, say that, um, and I agree completely with Kelly saying that the dynamic of healing is uneven between the aggressor and the other. Absolutely, 100%. But we have, to, the problem is we have to acknowledge internalized oppression. That's right, absolutely. Because we, we all, especially here in the, I mean, it's a very different dynamic in Germany. Here we have this situation where, you know, whiteness is the norm. And so, you know, for me, that meant that, okay, I know white, you know, and not that I was thinking this consciously, but as we go through our careers, like, okay, whiteness is, okay, I have to, I have to adapt myself to this mm -hmm. rather than saying it has to be a two-way street, right? right? These, these people have to, you know, I have to be able to be myself and these people have to adapt to me. It's not just me adapting to them. So I think that's where we have to take that internalized oppression and turn it around and say, no, I do not have to compromise who I am in order to just please this group of people, right? Yeah. Well, and I'll share, I'll share I mean, an anecdote. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book or not, but when I was at Wheaton, there, there, one, of my, uh, one of my colleagues, who's a good friend of my wife's from, uh, from Jamaica, African-American from Jamaica, who was a, an outstanding uh, uh, faculty member. And... Her, one of her white colleagues one day said to her, oh, I, whatever, I won't say the name, you're being so Jamaican. And, mm -hmm. and my friend looked at her and said, isn't that why you brought me here? <laughs> In other words, you know, don't bring, you didn't, I don't want to, I don't want to change who I am and, and conform to your social, uh, you know, your social folk, folk ways. I want to come, I mean, it's what, you know, um, Dr. Howard Thurman once said, when you invite the unknown brother, and I always say at and sister into your midst and do not allow their presence to change your culture, you're missing an opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's a real opportunity. And so it's not that, you know, you, you invite black, brown, Hispanic people into the, and Asians into your, your white community and expect them to be like you. You will invite them and, and expect that the culture will change in some fashion and mm -hmm. in, in good ways, right? Yeah. Uh, and even, even your anecdote about the name of the, the title of the book, the fact that someone was saying, I had no idea you were black in a, I guess, a somewhat innocuous way. But can, can you share a little bit of yeah, that story? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mike. So, so what happened is that <laughs> when I was at UT Austin, as the head of the Butler School of Music, well, it wasn't called Butler School of Music at that time, but head of the School of Music, I wanted to get some sco a scholarship money from a, a foundation that gave scholarships for a violinist. So I made the trip down to Houston, and, 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 and as I was shaking the hand of the CEO of the oil company, sitting down, he looked at me and he said, I had no idea you were black. And, and at first, I got really angry. I thought, hey, let's just listen, see where, he's, where this is going. And then he went on to say, perhaps you can help me. My wife and I have been going to the, to the Aspen Music Festival for more than 30 years, and we rarely see any Black violinists. Why is that? Mm. And so then we engaged into this really great conversation about 
why that was, what we were doing at UT Austin. And I eventually got the money that I wanted for the, a, a scholarship. Mm-hmm. But I, I use that as a cautionary tale with my mentees uh, because, you know, and I say, so what would have happened if I had gotten angry and just left? Well, obviously right. I wouldn't have gotten the scholarship money. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but more importantly, I found myself engaged in a conversation with a man who had something in common with, with you know, with me, the love of, of music. Yeah, and even, you know, and there was an opportunity there. And I guess, I know we're close on time, but how do each of you gather the reserve to be able to be gracious and find that opportunity in others? Because it does seem like it, it's got to be exhausting. So mm-hmm. I, I'd be curious. I know so we're funny. concluding thoughts, but uh, but well, I just was curious. I got that exact same question at lunch a couple of days ago with a friend who just read my book. And I said, you know what? We're... Look, we we can't get out of the sea, you know. We're 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 here, you know. This is my background. It's like we're in, we're in the sea, so we have to swim through it. And you can either, and I'm, it's not either or. You adapt. It's, you know, sometimes I'm frustrated and angry, and sometimes I'm I just focus on my family and my the fact that I've had an amazing career and I, the joy of that and the joy of living in California and the joy I'm gonna have of trudging through the snow in Montreal. I mean, you know, it's it's like it's it's you know, it's always there, but we have to live our lives. And, you know, and, and, you know, both Ron and I are people who are out there in the front and we, you know, I'm not going to relinquish that, you know, because I'm getting, you know, tired of it. I mean, I, all I have to do is think about my grandfather who was a sharecropper in Louisiana and how incredibly proud he is of me. Mm. And, you know, my mother who unfortunately has passed, but is, you know, she was a seamstress and, you know, I, I know, I mean, all it's so funny. I remember one time and I get the chills thinking about it, but I was on a plane flight flying home from probably from seeing my mom when she was ill. And I just, I, I had this weird, you know, um, imagery of all of my, these ancestors were just there with me hmm. and saying, Carrie, you're going to get through this. And we all have challenges in our life, whether, you know, at that point, my challenge was watching my mother struggle through a very, you know, a, a life ending illness. Yeah. Um, there, there are always going to be these, these times of struggle. And for me, I'm so fortunate that I have that, that, that sense of the, this huge legacy behind mm-hmm. me. And I'm sorry, Ron, I want to give you a chance to chime no, in. No, no. I mean, I, I, I'm just shaking my head. I, I mean, I think almost every day, well, I don't go into office now, but when I would go into the administration building, I think about the my, my foremothers and forefathers. I think about my father, the first black manager at the world's largest machine tool company, who on the day that he got his advancement, his boss, now his peer, said to him, yeah, well, to celebrate, why don't you mop my office for me? And I remember when my father told me the story, I said, and you did it? <laughs> And my father said, yeah, I wasn't, he wanted me to get angry. I wasn't going to get angry. I went ahead and mocked it. He mm. found a way to get back at me, by the way. That's another story. But, <laughs> but um, you know, and but, but for me, Mike, to answer your question, through chamber music. I started playing chamber music when I was 15. Mm. And the difference between playing in a chamber music group where you don't have a conductor and an orchestra where you do have a conductor is that the decision-making has to be collaborative. And you have to play, you have to make music with people who are very different from you sometimes we have different political perspectives and you just do it because you all have that one thing in common. You want to, you want to play, you want to play beautiful music to share it with others. Mm. And, and, and that has, that has helped me um, immensely. And the other thing that has helped me is just 
having grown up in a household where I knew very early on that I was loved unconditionally. Hmm. And we've tried to give that to our daughter. That's something no one can ever take from me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when you have that, you know, people will tell you, I never, I never refer to myself as President Ronald Fletcher. I always introduce myself as I'm Ron Ronald Fletcher, president of the University of Richmond. And that's by design. Mm. By the way, yeah, okay. one last comment, because another thing we have, we have to get together sometime over yeah, a, a Zoom glass of wine. But I want to talk get, to you about your book more, too. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But um, I, we also have in common that we have a child with ADHD. Um, uh-huh. and, and I'm sure we have some things to share around that. But I, we have to wrap up. <laughs> yeah, but it was, yeah. We we need to stay connected, Terry. Yes, absolutely. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, we could have clearly gone on longer, yeah. and it sounds like at least two of you uh, may may pick up on the conversation down the road. Hopefully, folks enjoyed uh, listening. We'd love to to hear back from anyone who's listening out there, uh, either in the podcast or in the Zoom room. And uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us, Ron. Thank you so much for inviting yeah. me. This, this was such a pleasure. Yes, it was a great run. I'll be following up with, uh, we'll just have to have a chance just to have a conversation. No, I will will definitely follow up. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.